0: So this morning we're going to look at actually the same text we looked at last Sunday, when Andy was up here preaching, but I'm going to take a a slightly different uh, focus on the text. Andy kind of focused on the first part of Philippians chapter two, uh, primarily dealing with a series of commands and exhortations for us as the church to walk in a manner worthy. That's from chapter one verse twenty-seven. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, or Another way to say that is to walk in a manner worthy of our citizenship in Jesus Christ. Right, We're in Christ. To walk in a way that, that, that shows that, that demonstrates that, and the Gospel work that He's done in us. He's, the salvation that He's brought about. The, the changed life. And specifically, how that impacts the way that we relate to one another. In the church, there's exhortations there for... Loving one another, for serving one another, for forgiving to one another in humility and in unity. So that was that was the way we looked at this text last week. This week, what I'm going to do is focus on the latter half of the text. We're, we're talking when I say the text, I'm talking about the first eleven verses or so, which is a, a beautiful and poetic examination of the nature of Jesus Himself. Not just the nature of Jesus, but of the example of Jesus. Who He is and what He, what he did. And that, that look at his, who He is and what he, what he has done is what compels and empowers us to be like Him. Going back to how we love one another and serve one another in humility and unity. Right? so the two the two sermons here are dealing with the same passage. We're just trying to fill it out and and tie it all together. In other words, today is about focusing on Jesus so that we can learn what it means to exalt him, specifically in the way that we worship Him together in self-giving love and unity as his body. That's today's message. So let me pray. Let's ask God to speak to us through His Word. And, uh, and then I'm going to take a few minutes to, to recap what Andy talked about last week just to help set that stage a little bit better. So Father, as we come before Your Word, as we listen to it, as we read it, and Lord, as You use me to expound upon it, to, to bring some application from it, where we first and foremost thank you that you've spoken to us. We thank you that you've spoken to us so that you can work in us. We thank you that the word of God is active. We thank you that the word of God is effective to to save people and to change people and to transform us into the image of your son. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together in your name and to to do this together that That there's even a picture in that, that you have by your word and by Jesus, who has died for us and resurrected again, you've brought us together as his body. This is a corporate faith, Christianity. So thank you that we're here together. And yes, Lord, we ask that you'd work in us. Make us what you want us to be, individually and as a church so that you would get glory, that, that Jesus Christ would get glory, as we'll read in this text, every knee bow, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We pray that in His name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's recap a little bit about, uh, from last week. What did, what did Andy point us to as he was up here preaching? Maybe you weren't here last week. Or maybe you were here last week, but I would say either way, it warrants repeating because it's such an important idea. In fact, let me, just, let me just say that again. That was a really, I think, a really helpful, really needed and good sermon. He did a really good job, Andy, so thank you for that. Uh, if you weren't here, I, I do want to encourage you to listen to it because I think it's one of those, this is certainly one of those passages that's, that's central uh, to our faith. And the exhortations here are central to what it means to be the people of God as his church. And I think that sermon last week was very helpful. So listen to it if you hadn't hadn't done that. But let me try to at least nutshell it for you. All right. I'm not gonna quite do it justice because Andy spent a good good chunk of time on it, but I'll nutshell it for you. So look again at Philippians chapter two, verse one. And I want you to notice here that Paul is is appealing to the church here, he's appealing to their experience asking them this question, have you tasted the fruit of the Gospel? Verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There's this appeal here that he's making to their experience. And it kind of reminds me of a conversation or conversations that I used to have with my kids when they were little. And I, and, I, and I was trying to help them understand what it means to be and to have friends. And I would say to them something that maybe you've said or maybe you've heard many times, and that's this. If you want to have a friend, you've got to what? You've got to be a friend, right? So there's sort of this appeal to experience in that statement. You know, if you know what it's like... To, to have the benefits of what friends bring to you, you've got to do that then for them. So and you talk to a child about friendship, you say things like when, when other people are nice to you, you like that, right? And when other people talk to you or, or ask you, how are you feeling? Or they care for you when you get hurt. You, you like that. You appreciate that. You need that, right? And your kids, of course, will say, yeah. And you say, well, don't you think they need that from you? Same kind of idea here I think that Paul is making. He's essentially saying to the Philippians, if you've experienced the blessings and benefits of the Christian life in the church, you've been encouraged, right? You've had had comfort. You've had love. You've experienced these things. Then it's time to be a part of passing those same blessings on to others as well. And so he's again, these these blessings that he mentions here. Encouragement, unity, comfort, fellowship, compassion. He's saying these are gifts. They're gifts from God, but they're experienced through relationship with other believers. So again, in other words, if you've experienced any of these things in your Christian life, it's a grace of God that's been given to you through the ministry of somebody else. They intentionally ministered that blessing to you. Therefore, do the same. Do the same within the life of the church. You have a, a role to play, not only as a recipient, but as a giver. And as Andy rightly pointed out, the if clauses here are really not ifs, they're, they're more like since. Since you have received these things, you have received these things, of course. You've received these things. And since you have received them, then also do them. Also give them. You can see this appeal to experience that is beginning to unfold. The basic idea. There's a way that the benefits of the Christian life will be experienced. Okay, and get this. It's through Giving. There's a way that the benefits of the Christian life, this, this the fruit of the gospel, this walking in a manner worthy, that will be experienced in the life of the church, and it's through giving. You're going to receive, no doubt. You have received, no doubt. But you only receive because somebody is giving. When somebody is given to you. So how will this be perpetuated? How will this continue? How will the church? continue to experience these blessings of God only when we choose to give and give and give and so that's where that's where we're going in this passage and this is where Paul's going to turn attention now to the, the the motive and the power behind that that call to be givers for the rest of the text he's going to point us to the example of Jesus And show us that it's, it's because that's precisely who Jesus is and what Jesus did that you as his body should reflect this here. So we're not just giving because it's, it's the right thing to do. We're not just giving because it's, there's a selfish desire in there. Well, if I give, then I'll get. So if I, if I want to get, I guess I have to keep on giving. It's not just sort of a cause and effect. There's a, there's a powerful motive here at, at work in the lives of the church by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of Christ who indwells us to look like He looked. To act like He acted. And there's this interesting thing here about understanding the nature and the, and the work, the character of Jesus that, that can be understood through something called paradox. Paradox. So I titled the message this morning, Beautiful Paradox. There's a beautiful paradox here as we look at what Jesus is like. And that paradox is summed up, again with my sermon title, in this idea of of full emptiness. Full emptiness. Do you know what I mean when I say paradox? Paradox. What what comes to mind when you when you hear the word paradox? Maybe you think of a contradiction. Maybe you think of a tension. Maybe some kind of inconsistency or anomaly. What is paradox? It's a really fascinating concept, and it's not like oxymoron. It's different than that. Oxymoron would be something like jumbo shrimp, right? Or 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 deafening silence. These two opposite things that that, that somehow paired together and. And make sense in some strange way. Those are maybe simple paradoxes. But but paradox can be so much deeper and richer and more beautiful than that. More interesting than that. For example, here's one. The paradox of war is that you sometimes have to kill people in order to stop the killing of people. That's not some kind of point I'm trying to make, but... Just to understand, paradox is interesting, isn't it? Paradox is poetic. Mother Teresa said this, and this is I think is, is, is really good. I found this paradox, she says, that if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. There's something beautiful and imaginary about paradox. In fact, one... Uh, one dictionary of literary terms says, some critical theory goes so far as to suggest that the language of poetry is the language of paradox. And I think it's because there's something about paradox that appeals to something that's deep in us. Something that's sort of planted in us. It's, it's, it, this, this idea of poetry and paradox is, is a uniquely human thing. You think about it. Animals don't understand paradox. You can go talk to your dog later today. I, I can promise you he or she will not be impressed by your poetry, right? Nature, in and of itself, is not poetic. It's only poetic when interpreted somehow by a human being, right? So there's something interesting about paradox that's that's deeply human. And yet I would ask this. Why? Or or is it just human? Or did it get implanted in us from someone? Is it part of the image of God in us? Interestingly, Jesus' teachings in the Bible are full of paradoxical statements. Like this. Many who are first will be last. And the last first. That's Matthew 19.30. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it Matthew 16 I'm the alpha and the omega I'm the first and the last the beginning and the end Revelation 22 right the bible's full of paradox and so my hope this morning is to make this case why this paradox that we'll find here in Philippians chapter 2 isn't something that we can just appreciate as humans as being poetic, but that in paradox, we would learn something about what it means for God to be who He is. And as a result of that, as an application of that, what it means for us to be fully human as we're made in His image. Here's the great paradox of Philippians 2. Look at verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you want to know what the what the amazing and great paradox of philippians chapter 2 is it's this it's that god god became a nobody And I I know last week, Andy, Andy said something similar to that. And, and, and he said, God. And he was kind of waiting for you to, to like understand the bigness of that word. And we, we, we kind of didn't get there, did we? But, but I want to try it again because, but to understand when I say God, think about the implications of what that means. God, the infinite one the Supreme one, the, the maker, the creator of all things, there is no one like Him, God, the ultimate of ultimate reality, that God became a nobody. There are massive implications to that paradox. Let's talk about what those implications are. The first one is that there's some theological implications that are, that are wrapped around this paradox of the gospel. Verse five, our motive is to, is to, is, is found in the example of Jesus, right? Have this mind among yourself. So look to Jesus and let this be your motive. Let this be your example. Verses six through seven, the idea that Christ, who is God, Who, who began, and, and by began, I don't mean he had a beginning, but, but you think about before the incarnation, his eternal existence was that of God himself. That eternal, infinite, supreme, above all, there is no one beside. He is the one and only God in every single way, which means that he enjoys all of the rights And all of the privileges that come along with being the most high, the most holy, the most sovereign, the most supreme being in all of existence. That's who he is. That's what he enjoys. In other words, it's not only his right to enjoy all of that position, but in fact, it is his nature. He is the greatest. There is no one above or beside him. Everything is below him. And yet, this one whose mode of existence is real equality with God became something that he was not. Up until that point, he took on flesh we're told here he became a servant. That's not to say that Jesus wasn't a serving being in eternity, because I think the Father, the Son, and the Spirit serve one another in the way that they love one another. The idea here is he became like what you and I would consider to be the lowest station in life. He took on the status of nobody. Not just taking the form of humanity, not the form of humanity, but in fact becoming a real human being in every way. And Paul is going to tell us here how and why he does this. Let's start by addressing the how. Again, we're talking just sort of theological implications of understanding what's going on in this text. And maybe by talking a little bit about the how, we can clear up some common misconceptions about the meaning of what it means that, that Jesus took on flesh. That Jesus emptied Himself. That Jesus you know, humbled Himself in this way. It says here the way Jesus took the form of a servant by, by, was by making Himself nothing. Literally emptying Himself. He emptied Himself. What does that mean? I know many of you are, or either are or have been students of the Bible. Maybe you've taken some kind of systematic theology class. and You're going to come up against this concept. These verses serve as, as one of the great texts for understanding who Jesus is. We call that Christology in our theology. And specifically what we, what we get here is this concept of what's called the hypostatic union the idea that Jesus is fully god and fully man at the same time i had a professor one time that used to used to say god in a bod right fully god <laughs> fully human at the same time which is a very important doctrine it's a critically important doctrine jesus was indeed fully god and fully human i say it's an important doctrine because it's one that gets uh, attacked a lot. The, one of the great heresies has been getting wrong the idea of the nature of Jesus. Was Jesus God who just sort of appeared to be in the flesh? No. Was Jesus a man who was just anointed by the Holy Spirit in a special way that, 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 that wasn't at His birth, that, that happened at His baptism or some other, some other time? No, he was always fully human from birth, from conception, birth on, and fully God. And the reason why that's so important is because the gospel itself depends on that. The wages of sin is death. Humanity has to pay the price of sin and if Jesus isn't fully man he can't fully pay the debt but only god can resurrect himself only god can live the sinless life jesus has to be both or the gospel falls apart so it's an important important understanding but there's a there's a there's another way i think that we can we can look at that just to just to kind of understand how and why that's important. Because it says here that He did empty Himself. So what does it mean that God would empty Himself and take on the form of a servant? He had to give up something in emptying Himself. And some would say, well, He gave up His attributes. He emptied Himself of His attributes of God. And I would say, that's not true. And I'll just give you the most Simple, basic analogy for that. Ducks have webbed feet, right? Ducks have bills. Ducks have feathers. Ducks quack. Take away any of that, and I don't know what you have, but it's not a duck. Right? You can't take away someone's attributes and still have them be what they were. Similarly, the Son of God wasn't stripped of any of His attributes. What he, what he did at certain times was he, he limited the expression of those attributes. So for example, we might say, well, is he omnipresent? Is he, is, God is everywhere at all times. If Jesus is a man, then isn't Jesus limited to being in one place at one time? Did he, did he give up that attribute? Well, the answer to that question is only in a certain sense. He limited himself, certainly as a human being, to be in a place at a time. But did he did he give up his omnipresence? Do you remember the call of Nathaniel the apostle? This is just one example. Philip goes and and, and, and says, I've, I've I, you know, I've i found the Lord, come with me, let's follow this guy. And, and, and Nathaniel's sitting under a tree, and he gets up and he goes. And John 1, Nathaniel says to, to Jesus. How do you know me? Because Jesus sees him, comes and goes, Oh, that's Nathanael, a true Israelite. And Nathanael's like, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And you know what Nathanael did? He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Right? Jesus didn't give up his, his deity. In fact, Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the expression, He emptied Himself, far from meaning He emptied Himself of, of something related to His nature, is really more idiomatic for something like, He gave up His rights. He could have considered equality with God a thing to be grasped, and yet He humbled Himself He emptied Himself in that way. He made Himself nothing. Not literally nothing, but in a status way, nothing. He abandoned His rights and became a nobody. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. That's how He took the form of a servant. Now, There's your theology lesson for the day. Now, here's the all important why. Why is that important? Why is that important? Well, again, look down at verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not consider his equality something to be, in other words, exploited. His status. Something to be exploited, something to be employed for his own advantage. That's remarkable. Remember who he is the supreme one. No one above or beside, only below this one. Not going to take advantage of those rights, not going to take advantage of that status though he was in the form of God. That phrase there could be understood in one of two ways. And, and I want you to get this because this is important. It could be understood concessively, which would be to say, kind of like it's written here, although he was in very nature God, although he although he was in this nature, he took the form of a servant. But I think the context here better suits a, causally, uh, a, a causation here that says more like this, because, not although, But because he was in very nature God, he took the form of a servant. That says something about who God is. Because he is God and he is this kind of God, this is the way this kind of God would act. This supreme one, with all the rights and privileges, would empty himself. This is a God of love. That's why Jesus did this. Think about pre-existence. What kind of God is this? Do you ever think about that? What, what was God like and what was God doing before any of this ever existed, before creation? You think, well, he was, I guess He was alone. Was He alone? Yeah, but no, right? Because what do we know about God? We know God, is, God exists in relationship. He's Father, He's Son, He's Spirit. And we know that God is fully satisfied in Himself. God wasn't bored. You weren't made because God got bored. Right? Fully satisfied in Himself. How? Because God, in His nature, is a God who relates in self-giving love between Father, Son, and Spirit. God is a giving being. Then creation then. Why did God create? Why did He create? It wasn't because He was bored. Because He's a giver. I don't know why He chose to do it when He did. God doesn't exist in time, so I guess that's a kind of a moot question anyway. But But why did He do it? Because God chose to create creation and specifically humanity in His image that He might give of His self-giving nature and love to others to share that. And think Gospel. John 3.16 For God so loved the world He gave. His only begotten Son. And here we get to Philippians 2 and we see how Jesus gave. He gave of Himself until there was nothing left to give. Even to the point of death. Who? God? God? the supreme one, the source of life, even to the point of death. Even the death of a cross. Not just death, but the lowest death. He gave. He didn't think of his status as God as something that gave him a right to get and get and get, to take and take and take. His status of as God meant. He had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve, and because precisely because he is this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. That's paradox. Do you see the beauty of that paradox here? What is full? I mean, full. out of, and because of, that fullness, empties himself for the benefit of others, for the benefit of you and me. The one who's worthy of all of the taking in the universe becomes the supreme giver of the universe. Now Paul's appealing to this, and he's saying, do you understand what I'm asking of you, church. Do you understand who you are in Christ? Do you understand what kind of God we serve? Do you understand what He's done for you? Now do you understand why I'm asking you to love one another, to serve one another, to give to one another, precisely because you were made in this image. And though your sin has marred that image, And though sin has turned everything on its head and and has made us by nature ones who want to take and take and take and and, and to make our status the thing that we'd hang our hats on, right? To, To make much of ourselves. You have a God in Jesus Christ who redeemed you out of that mess and shows you a new way, His way, to be a giver. And that, church, is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That church is what it looks like to be fully human, redeemed in your humanity in Christ. God loves paradox. We should love paradox in the same way because our essence is wrapped in it. We see our maker in it. We're drawn to God by it. And again, that smacks in the face of everything that sin tells us what it means to survive as a human being, right? It's the complete opposite of that, right? Survival of the fittest. Take, take, take. Live for yourself. Take care of number one. And yet, Paul here is saying, No, Jesus came to show us what it means to be really human. Give. God is reclaiming you for his glory. He's uniting all things together in Jesus. How do you unite takers together in Jesus? You make them givers. And the way he's doing it is through the original way of life itself, through self-giving love. So what are the practical implications then? What's this mean for us as a church who's centered in Christ, who revolves around the, the, the Gospel as our, as our common creed. What does it mean for us? Well, I'm not going to re-preach. This is Andy's sermon for last week. All right, But look again at verses 3 and 4, what he preached, and just see how obvious it is now. How obvious it is. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Oh, that makes sense, right? It's so obvious now. We see the nature and the example of Jesus Christ. And also we get to see here that 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 presses on us. We we, we get to understand here that, that to say something like this in the church is necessary because it's necessary. Something's going on. We still have flesh. We still live in sin as, as, even as God's redeemed people. And the Philippian church was no different. There was some fighting in the church. There was some arrogance in the church. There was some selfishness in the church. And so Paul is addressing that here and he's saying, look, I love you. I'm thankful for you. You've been a partner with me in the Gospel. But, but, we're not quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. Don't take your eye off the ball. Don't take your eye off Jesus. Don't take your eye off the power and the example that we've been redeemed in and called to live as. Remember who Jesus is. And remember that He set you free to be like Him. This is what it means to live your lives in a manner that's worthy of the Gospel. What happens when the, the church gives like Jesus gives? What are the, what are the ultimate implications of that? Well, there's, there's, there's two things. Um, uh, we emulate Christ. That's one of them. But we also then exalt Him. And I'm going to talk about exalting Him first. When we function in a way that, that images the self-giving love of Christ, we don't make this about ourselves, do we? That's, that's a taking mindset. A giving mindset. There's, there's, there's nothing about you involved in that, right? What there is is an, ex- an exaltation of, of Jesus. Jesus. That's what's important. We want to point to who He is. How He is our King. How He is our Redeemer. How He is our example, right? And that's exactly what Paul says happens here, right? Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord that Jesus Christ is lord that he is lord to the glory of God the father so when we act like Jesus when we live in a manner worthy of who he is and what he's done we're continually proclaiming to one another he is lord it's about him it's about what he's done It's about how we're now new people because of who He is. Not not because of who we are. We exalt Jesus. We bend the knee continually as we serve one another and proclaim, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus came for you. How can I serve you as Christ has served you? How can I serve you as Christ has served me? Jesus came for me. We exalt Him. And... We point then, not just what happens internally in the church when we exalt him, but we, we, we point to his exaltation to the nations around us who observe us, because it's countercultural to be givers. Why are you like that? That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus says, what, love one another and by your love they'll know you're my disciples. Jesus says, do good works in front of the world and they will give glory to your Father. Right? And even if they don't, Jesus is exalted. He's exalted as the one who who renews and frees us up to live in a self-giving way, and He's exalted in the One who stands in judgment over all that won't. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. This paradox is the way of God. The exaltation of Christ is an ultimate implication by the way, just just um, just as a side, I think this is important. I wasn't going to say this until I just thought of it, but um, why that's important for us to understand is that that there is a there is a tremendous amount of, of of false teaching currently that would undermine everything I just said about about Jesus being exalted by the way that we by the way that we give, and it, it goes back to that that misunderstanding of who who Jesus is, what's his nature? Is he fully God or fully human? The prosperity gospel, which we hear a lot about, is very influential, especially in our country. They get this wrong. and Here's how they get it wrong. They would say that Jesus was a a man who was just anointed by God. And therefore, what Paul is pointing us here to is that you can similarly be a man or a woman who's anointed by God and do the things that Jesus did, which ultimately points to the exaltation of you. You can be just like Him. No, you can't, Right? We are His body; we reflect Him, but we are not Him. Glory to Him, and Him alone. That's an aside. Tuck that away. Right? The exaltation of Christ. The second ultimate implication is the emulation of Christ. It's again our example. But I want to point you to the text here and just give you just give you a, a little a little nugget of application to take away and chew on. Look at verses twelve and thirteen. This is Paul's response now to all this this exaltation of Jesus. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the therefore is certainly tying us back to everything he says. And he says, work out. You've always been obedient people. That's a good thing. That's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an encouragement here from Paul. Right? Continue to work out your salvation. What does it mean to work it out? I think based on what he said, it means to to walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. To to love one another. to, To be humble. To have unity with one another. Keep working out this example of living as Jesus has lived. Right? Work it out. And then he says, God works in you Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're talking about joy, right? Joy and unity in Christ. What what greater joy would there be than to know that God is working in you and that he's pleased? That he's pleased. And it reminded me of something when I when I read that and thought about that and, and been thinking together with the elders about just you know some of the things that we want to be encouraging the church in this year. It reminded me of a, of a movie that I realized was made probably before most of you were born. So I'm not sure if you've seen it. Chariots of Fire. You guys know that movie? If you don't know it, the gist of it is uh, one of the main characters is a, is, a, is a guy from Scotland. This is the early part of the, the 1900s um, who's running... For the British Olympic team in the 1924 Olympics. This guy is named Eric Liddell. He's, he's also a believer, he's a missionary actually in China, and he's sort of torn between: should I continue doing my missions work or should I run? Should I pursue running and and, and do the Olympics? And here's, here's how he answers that question. And Yaz, would you put up the slide? He says, I believe God made me for a purpose. Now, when he said that, he's thinking about his missionary work. Because he says, actually there, I, I, I cut it out, but he says, for China. I believe he made me for a purpose. Right? But, he says, he also made me fast. And I love this. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God is working, wants to work and will in us for His pleasure. Your joy comes when you feel that pleasure. Right? So what does it look like for you to be a giver? I think like Eric Liddell, you have to say God made me for a purpose. Your purpose is all these things that we just talked about here, right? And He made me what? what How has God gifted you? What has He made you? Has He has He made you to feel His pleasure when you sit with someone and comfort them? Has He made you to feel His pleasure when you can strategize with others about ministry vision or implication? Has He made you to feel His pleasure when you can teach the Word of God to other people? Or to disciple somebody one-on-one? Or to open your home and invite people in and care for them and love them in fellowship? How has God made you? God has given each of us a gift. Not just a gift. Multiple gifts. And the key for us is to, is to discern, determine How do we apply this? We got to know what those gifts are. And you're going to find those gifts by understanding what it is that, that makes you feel is pleasure. Doesn't mean that it's not sacrificial. By the way, I've already told you how I feel about running. Running's no fun, right? But when you're good at something, or when you see fruit in something, or when you just feel like this fits, this is this is what invigorates me. That's what God has made you. Use it and feel his pleasure. Use it for the exaltation of Jesus. Use it for the unity and the love and the comfort of the church. You say, how do I find out what that gift is? Well, pray, ask God to reveal it to you. Do stuff and see what fits and ask other people. And hopefully as a church, we can, we can do more of that. Because I think that's an important thing for us to do in the coming weeks and months. Is like, How do we help each other figure out how to identify and employ those gifts? But I think that's what Paul's getting at here. We're made to be givers. And you've been given gifts to give away for the exaltation of Jesus and the betterment of the body. So take that away. Chew on it. Pray on it. Let's see what God will do with that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great passage. Thank you for this glimpse into who Jesus is. This mystery that was, that was hidden for ages. The expectation was there, but the fulfillment was, was always looked forward to. And yet, here we are. We get to see your great plan in action, we get to see the manifestation of your messianic, salvific plan, we get to look at Jesus and see not what we expected to see, but to see what's even more beautiful. A king who serves. A supreme God who gives. And Lord, as we've been reclaimed in Him, Lord, show us how to look like Him. Show us how to walk in a manner worthy. Show us how to bless one another as you've blessed us. And may Jesus be exalted as a result. Grow our church in depth and love for Christ. Grow us as praisers who continually give thanks to Jesus for what He's done. And grow us as proclaimers who speak the name of Jesus that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. Hopefully, Lord, hopefully in praise that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for him. And thank you for the church and the gifts that you've given, Lord. Be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.